Good morning, y'all. Good morning. I thought about great are you, Lord, will be the cry of God's people when we are in his presence for all of eternity. And uh, it will be easy to sing because of his greatness. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. 14 through 21. I came across uh, the name of a man this week. His name was Joshua Bell. And if you're like me, you don't know who he is. And so let me introduce you to him, if I could. He began playing the violin at four years old after his mom discovered that he had taken rubber bands from around the house and stretched them across the handles of his clothes dresser and started to pluck them by the tune she had played on the piano. At 14, he appeared as a soloist with, a vi with his violin with the Philadelphia or Orchestra, and at age 17, he made his debut at Carnegie Hall. His awards and accomplishments are just way too many to list. But on January 12, 2007, uh, he became part of an experiment in conjunction with the Washington Post, where he played at the D.C., Washington, D.C. subway station incognito. So he put on clothes, hid who he was so nobody would notice him. And the whole thing was videotaped on hidden camera. 1,097 people who passed by him while he played. In light of that, only seven stopped to listen to the greatest violinist in the world. For 45 minutes playing, he had the grand, grand amount, a grand amount of $32.17 put in his empty violin case as it lay there on the floor beside him. Now remember, this is a guy who literally two nights before played before 8,000 people in Washington, D.C. and got paid $1,000 per minute while he played on his $7 million violin. The main reason for this experiment, I thought, was intriguing. It was to make a point that people only see what they expect. And the 1,000 folks that walked by him and heard him in the subway station, they expected nothing, so they saw nothing. Just another bomb begging for money by plucking on some strings. When I read that, in light of studying our passage today, I thought for you and I as Christ followers, there's so much that goes on around us that we do not see. Spiritual realities that Paul will speak of greatly in Ephesians 6 and Monty a couple times as we've unpacked these first three chapters have spoken about. We do not see nor hear nor give much thought about these spiritual realities. We are a lot like the commuters in the subway station who walk by just surviving in a daze, going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And the problem for us is this, I think, affects my prayer life and your prayer life. 
because way more than what we want to admit, our prayer life is determined by what we see and what we hear and what we think. So one writer put it this way. So perhaps one main reason we don't pray as we ought to is because we don't see and hear and think as we should. Amen? The Apostle Paul actually saw and heard and thought about reality as reality really is. He was in tune to not only the physical world, but also the spiritual world. That the spiritual world, the unseen world, was as real as this podium I'm standing behind. A spiritual reality that the scriptures tell us is sure and true. Especially in Ephesians 1 through 3, where there are basically no commands. It's all about the spiritual realities of who you and I are in Christ. And here's the point. This reality that Paul was in tune to was reflected in Paul's prayers. And that is why I think it's not hard to see the difference between what Paul prays about and what I pray about or you pray about. Matter of fact, in America, I did some little research this week. The number one thing that people pray about is what? Guess. No, that was about number three. Health. Health. And look, there's nothing wrong with praying about your health or praying, Lord, give me some money. I got to pay the bills, right? I, I get that. We pray about anything and everything. But what's priority? The reason we pray, I think, of health more than anything is because if we're really honest, we're afraid to die and we have this sneaky suspicion that it's better here than it is there. And that's a lie. I'm old enough to know that's a lie. Here's the good news. You and I can learn to pray by looking at Paul's prayers. And this is his second prayer in the book of Ephesians. The first was Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. One writer put it this way, If every part of our lives is to be renewed and reformed by the word of God, how much more should that be so of our praying? And our goal this morning is your title the heart of God in our praying, to stay focused on it as a priority as we pray. So the first thing Paul prays for is for God's purposes and to whom he trusts. Verses 14 and 15. Read those verses with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Oh, I read too much, didn't I? I'm sorry. For this reason, I bow, I'm just so excited. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Verse 14 starts out with, I think, what should be now, if you've been here, a very familiar term, and that is the term, for this reason. You heard that before? We've been over it several weeks. 
Paul kneels before the Father to pray. And so when we see the words, for this reason, we always go back and ask, for what reason? Which points us back to the preceding verses of chapter 3, 1 through 13. But remember, Paul had started to pray after he wrote chapters 1 of Ephesians and chapters 2 of Ephesians. He started to pray in 3, 1, and then he's like, he said, ah, but they won't really get it unless I give them more info on this mystery between a Jew and Gentile, the two becoming one in Christ. So there's a long parenthesis between verse 2 and verse 13. And then he picks up here for this reason where he initially was going to pick up in 3.1. So this prayer would make total sense if it came after Ephesians 2, 20, 11 through 22. Make total sense. But again, he does that parenthesis thing. So what is the reason? If we could summarize chapters 1 and 2, the reason is the purposes of God, that God's people would be mature and they would be unified with one another in light of all that God has done, as he wrote about in Ephesians 1 and 2. So we see here that God's purposes equals Paul's prayers. God's work in his people is what Paul prays about. God's will is what Paul prays about. God wants his people to be spiritually mature, so Paul prays. God wants his people, as Ephesians 2 says, to build a church body in which his spirit is at work where they together live in dying to themselves together. So Paul prays. So there's no doubt that Paul's prayers, as I think ours should be, is shaped by the values of the gospel and eternity. And more than that, Paul says, they are the very foundation of why I pray. For this reason, Paul says, I bend my knee to pray. Notice also who Paul prays to, the Father. He's not praying to some distant grandpa in the sky. He's praying to his heavenly father. And now, Paul, where would Paul learn that from? Well, he was told about the life of the Lord Jesus from the other apostles. So he learned it from the Lord Jesus. Remember Matthew 6? Jesus said, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Or the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. So as Paul prays, his theology about who God is, as his heavenly Father, is reflected in his prayers. He is a perfect father. And I just want to stop there because I know it's true with me and I know it's true with lots of you that your earthly father was so far away from your perfect heavenly father that there's, there's trauma there, there's obstacles there, there's nuances to jump over to get there. I want to tell you that you can work through that. And the goal here is to see God, our heavenly father, in light of who he really is versus reflected in your earthly father. I wish I had more time, but Monty will not allow it. <laughs> so Paul prays to his perfect father in whom he can trust, whom is good, 
who knows how to give good gifts to his children, who is sovereignly in control. And as Paul wrote already twice in Ephesians, the one you and I have access to. Honestly, if I'm just being bare honest with you and me, prayerlessness, mine and yours, is directly related to our view of who God is. But Paul tells us here, a true knowledge of God is a great motivation to pray. So Paul prays for God's purposes and to whom he trusts. And then secondly, we see Paul prays that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner man. That's his second request. Look at verses 16 and 17a. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his inner through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As we unpack these verses, Notice first what Paul does. He says, grant this prayer request according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory really is the sum total of all of God's attributes. Paul is saying, I know exactly who I'm praying to. It is the one who is limitless. He is not lacking in resources to meet our needs or Paul's needs which again is such a beautiful example of Paul allowing or letting his theology be reflected in his prayers. And the main thrust of this request and this next request is power, which is something that Paul regularly prays through. In his first, in his first prayer in Ephesians 1, he prayed for that. And we just think, I think we need in America here, need to remind ourselves that biblical power is not power like the power team. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember the evangelical power team that traveled around the country. You remember them? Look them up. They had Superman kind of suits on. Some of y'all remember? Yep. They'd go around and they would bend bars and break bricks and chop wood Big old hulky dudes, looked like me back in the day, way back in the day. And then they would quote, 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 Philippians 3.16, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I had been a Christian two months when I saw them dudes. And I was like, yeah, let's go. It didn't last very long. It's not that kind of power. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Dr. D.A. Carson long-term seminary prof and teacher. We want to experience power so we can be in control, but Paul prays for power so we can be controlled by God. That's the point here of Paul's prayer. Listen to Paul as he prays for power in Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings. One writer I read said, we rarely pray like that in America. I would say it's safe to say that we would all like spiritual power in order to love and obey Christ more. Can I get an amen? Raise your hands. Anybody open to that? So what I thought I would do is just give you a glimpse of how the Bible describes 
and outlines biblical power so you will know or not know if you're actually experiencing it. We always need to pray for it, but what does it look like when God is at work through his power, strengthened by his spirit in us? Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so, so, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That verse tells us if you have biblical hope, which is really a synonym for certainty in your eternal life, a hope that gives you peace in death, no fear of condemnation, along with the ability to refuse instant gratification in this world because you understand that your reward comes in the next world and you know you are not what you are going to be. You have the assurance that God is sovereign, that he is guiding the world to a great con divine conclusion, which in the end will be good for his children, the Bible says you have hope, which is the power of God working in you. Second passage, Colossians 1, 29. says, to this end, Paul writes, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which is so powerfully works in me. So here Paul describes biblical power. He says, if you are motivated to give yourselves to others in ministry, if God has and is using you for the good in the lives of his people, then the power of God is at work in you. Last passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. I love this one. Paul writes again, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, treasure being the gospel, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is saying there, if you're willing to take the gospel to others, even in persecution, if you're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, you have the power of the living God working in you. This is how God's word describes biblical spirit-led power. And Paul prays that this power would be in your inner being. When I first read that, I thought, God, we're going to have to unpack that. Wouldn't you think? If I just left that here, you'd be like, come on, bro. What are we talking about here? As I thought about how to do that quickly, the best way I think to unpack what is our inner being is to read another passage that Paul wrote again in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. There Paul writes, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, here's what Paul is telling us. He has this, at this time, I mean, he's an old, tortured, physically broke down body. That's his outer man. He's only a couple years from being beheaded in Rome. And then he speaks, we know, of the inner man in our text, which is the seat of one's heart, mind, and soul. And he is saying here, it is the inner man that is being renewed and refreshed and growing in spiritual strength, even as Paul physically is declining and doesn't feel as good and is old and stiff and hurting. We feel and see the difference in our physical bodies, don't we, as we age? I'll just call it mature. As I mature physically, <laughs> man, I got aches and, and I got all kinds of stuff. You don't need to hear about it. And we age, as we age and mature spiritually, we feel and see the difference in our inner man. I remember 10 plus years ago now, going to a person of this church's uh, grandparents' home, and they said, my granddad will be out in a minute. I think he was 90, 91. He said, he's in there. And I looked in there in the other room, and I saw a lounge chair laying back with a little light beside him, a book laying on his chest, and his feet stretched out. I said, what's he doing? I thought he was sleeping. He said, he's praying. So he spends hours a day in prayer as a 90-plus-year-old man. I thought, that's what Paul's speaking of here. This inner man being renewed. We become more steadfast as our inner man is, grows. More radiant, more joyful, great perspective, and more wisdom. It's as if we have one foot here as we... Our inner man is renewed and one foot in heaven. Even as the end comes and they lay us in that casket, our inner man is renewed in eternity. This is a hard perspective, and here's why. We live, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to describe this. We live in a world that is one million percent focused on the external and the outer man. I grew up in that kind of home, and now it's just blown the lid off. I actually read yesterday, in 2021, $14.6 billion were spent on surgical and non-surgical cosmetic procedures. Pet owners spent $62 million on plastic surgery for their pets. The number one procedure was an entropian surgery in order to give your dog or cat an eye lift. We have lost our minds. So if you see a cat or dog walking around like this... <laughs> And I was like, I'm looking for them. And if I come home and my cat has one of those, me and Jenna go have problems. <laughs> know where all my money went. 
So we got to fight against this. Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power in the realm of our personhood that controls our character and prepares us for eternity. A power to think and act in ways that please Christ. It is a slow go. It is hard, but it is very possible. And Paul prays his guts out that for himself and for the church. Again, D.A. Carson says this, The devil himself can recite scripture and know it's true, yet he personally experiences nothing of its transforming power. But God's purpose for men and women he redeems is not simply to have them believe certain truths, but to transform them in a lifelong process that stretches toward heaven. So it is that Paul prays as such for. Concerning our inner and outer man, let me tell you how this ends up. If your outer man is all you're concerned about, even for Christians, and your inner man does not grow into maturity, more than likely you're going to grow to be an old and bitter person. You ever seen those? One of my greatest fears. But if your inner man is renewed and your outer man is not your priority, you will become better not bitter because you will be more like Christ. It's a beautiful picture of where we're all heading. Thirdly, Paul prays that we would have power, here it is again, to grasp the incomprehensible magnitude of the love of Christ. I had no, there were, I just want to put a bunch of big words there and you'll see why. Verses 17b through 19. Again, read with me. I'll just start with 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays again that we would have power of the grasp, the incomprehensible magnitude of the love of Christ. Once again, as I said, this is a prayer for power, but here's the power's purpose is to enable you and I to grasp the incomprehensible, limitless, infinite love of Christ. Paul knows they're believers. He uses this phrase, you have been rooted and grounded in love. Rooted being an agricultural term, talking about roots going down deep in Christ. Uh, uh, Grounded being an architectural term that talks about having a solid foundation in Christ. So he knows they're believers. He knows he's reminded them in Ephesians 1 of God's sovereign love that he chose them before the foundation of the world, and he adopted them as sons and daughters in Christ. So why is it so important for them or us to grasp Christ's limitless love? Why is it so important for them? Here's the reason. Paul in us, Paul knows people. And in knowing people, he knows that we do not comprehend just how great the love of Christ is. So here, this is not a prayer that you and I would love Christ more, although that's worthy to pray for. 
It is a prayer here that Christ's love for us would go down with deep roots and with a thick foundation to the deepest parts of our soul. I think as I prepared this sermon, I envisioned myself staying here or standing here and looking at you, speaking to myself and speaking to you. The Lord Jesus loves you. I don't know how else to tell you that. But if that's not consciously on your mind and soul, you will struggle spiritually. And I love to add the phrase, he loves you in spite of you. He's faithful when you are faithless. And I know some of you are saying, yeah, 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 I know that. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know where my heart has wanted to go, where it has gone, in actions, words, and deeds. Yes, I do. Because I'm human too. And he knows. And he says, while you were yet sinners, I shed my blood for you. That's a game changer. <clears throat> Let me keep unpacking why. As I said, Paul's an old man. He's been beaten over and over for the sake of Christ. But he is stunned still. He's two years away from being beheaded, and he's still stunned by the love of Christ for him. And he wants the Ephesians and the church that follows, the believers that follow, to be stunned as well. He knows that it is the secret sauce to loving Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and soul. Here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 4. We love God and others because he first loved us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And the result is it's incredibly motivating to chase hard after a God that loves us like that. Now, how do you in the world do you measure limitless love of Christ? How can you fully grasp something that Paul says here is incomprehensible, that we won't get this side of heaven? It, the only way Paul knows how to do it again, and he does this a lot, he's stacking terms. And what does he do? He says, when I think of the love of Christ, theologians have called it the four magnitudes, the breadth, the length, the height, and depth of the love of Christ. C.S. Lewis, I thought, gave it good definition when he said, in concerning breadth, it's broad enough to include the Jew and the Gentile. Concerning length, it's chosen before the foundation of the world. Lewis said it goes from eternity to eternity. Concerning height, Ephesians tells us he has seated us with him in heaven. And concerning depth, his love was so great that we were dead in our sins, but he made us alive in Christ. Let me be totally honest with you. 
okay, as your friend, as your pastor, here's the deal. A real deep and rich perception of the love of Christ rarely comes to the person who spends very little time in the scriptures and prayer. It just, when you listen to football coaches talk about their teams, here's a phrase they'll say. It is what it is. <laughs> you can't short circuit the process. Secondly, it is not done and cannot be done in isolation. That sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's both and. Our independence and self-sufficiency blinds us to his love. John Stott, the great pastor, said, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. That's what Paul says. Did you notice when comprehending this incomparable, comprehensive love of Christ, did you notice that he says, with who? All the saints. It takes all the saints to grasp the magnitude of the love of Christ. It is certainly a community project. The reason is, look, we are hurting people. We are broken people. We are damaged people. So we need each other to tangibly help us believe the love of Christ. And to do that, there's got to be some transparency. Thirdly, it does not come to the one who thinks they are a good person or to the one who thinks they are all bad. No one's all bad or all good. It comes to the person who sees rightly their sin and what they deserve was the wrath of God and they got the opposite through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. That's who it comes to. Lastly, when Paul phrased, just to know this, when he used the phrase that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, it's just another way to be saying spiritually mature. That is what Paul wants. And then lastly, oh, from that, I want to say this. Here's what we do. We see Paul, he directly connects being a mature believer with grasping the love of God. How about that? Like, the more you grasp the love of God in Christ for you, the more you mature. The less you grasp it, the more immature you stay. That ought to drive us to Christ. Again, one writer said, our speech, our thoughts, our actions, our reactions, our relationships, our goals, our values are all transformed. If only we live in the self-conscious enjoyment. Think about that. The self conscious enjoyment of the love of Christ versus how most of us walk around, myself included at times, is in the self-reminding of my own craziness and sinfulness. It's got to be both. But we self-conscious enjoyment the love of Christ. He goes on to say our testimony is then no longer just dry and correct doctrinally. It is alive and living and vital as well. We now know we are growing up spiritually when we live like that. And then lastly, and quickly, Paul prays theology that leads to doxology. Look at verse 20 and 21. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's theology in Ephesians 1 through 3 has deep roots which causes him to break out in worship. That's what doxology is. Paul prays and Paul praises. That is a normal rhythm. Pray and praise. Theology is just not a grand academic idea, but it is for expressing our hearts to God about God. And Paul's doxology here invites us to meditate on God, to pray to God and praise God, who is able to do far more abundantly than you and I ever thought he could do in our lives to make us mature in Christ. So what do we take away from this this morning? What is our so what? I want to take you back for the so what to verse 17. You thought I skipped over it. But I, I did, uh, but I want to I wanna grab it here for our purposes, 17a. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This little phrase can be confusing because what it's not talking about, and some people think it's talking about, or at first glance think it's talking about, is when... The initial salvation, when Christ comes to reside in the believer through his spirit, it's not talking about that. It is referring to Christ taking up residence in the hearts of believers as they learn more and more to trust him. That's why I use the word by faith. So it's to make, in some ways, people have said to make our hearts Christ's home. Now, to illustrate that, uh, we bought our house nearly 19 years ago, not far from here in Berkshire. And because we've had crazy, not crazy kids, great kids, but they cost crazy amount of money, right, to raise, everything just stayed the same. Now, look, I'm not complaining. Yes, we liked it. We stayed there. But it, it just wasn't us. If you know Jen and I, we're earthy, we're rustic, like we, we have the same taste, Right? But our house was canary yellow on the walls and had a fancy white uh, mantle over the fireplace that turned black underneath over all the years. It just, you know what I mean? It just wasn't us. It wasn't where we went, ugh, we feel so comfortable. This, this is us. So what we did uh, over the last 18 months, we've been doing some projects. And just this week, we got through with some And a lot of it's done on the inside. And Jen and I said, man, this feels like us. Barn, wood, beam on the mantle. Live game hanging there. (laughs) Right? Being, no, I'm just kidding. Stone fireplace, you get it. But it felt, feels like us. It feels comfortable. And I thought about this. So when Christ comes to take up residence in us initially, here's what he finds. He finds a residence that doesn't feel comfortable to him. He wants to turn it in a place where he feels at home. 
where it's appropriate for him, a home which is comfortable. He wants to in some ways flip this new home. He's invaded, but it takes lots and lots of work. Does it not? Can you say amen to that? Make no mistake, it takes lots of power to change our residence into one that reflects him. That's exactly why Paul prays as he does here for power. The picture that Robert Boyd Munger in his classic, if you've ever read it, one of the first five books I read as a new Christian, it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. He paints this picture for us, and the quote is on your notes. You know, the truth that Christ wants my fellowship, that he loves me, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my time with him in his word and in prayer than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find a time and place when the word of God and in prayer you, so you can be together with him. So take a minute and ask the question, so what? as you do I pray that even this morning we have grown to grasp just a little more of the very particular love that you have for each of us Lord I pray that we would be able to walk in the reality of that and that our hearts would mature Amen.